building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. I read a book one time, I don't recall the name. Um, It was a missionary, a young guy gets saved and really just cannot get rid of the call to go tell everybody about Christ. So he goes down to the Amazon. This would have been, I think, probably the 80s that he went down there. And when he gets to the Amazon, he goes to all the missionaries that are down there, the societies, to go and go out into the jungles. And he was rejected by all of them. Well, where did you get your education? Which mission school did you go to? What, What degree do you have? But he didn't have any of the right degrees, so they just outright rejected him and told him to go home. And then what he started to find out is, gosh, you know, this guy was in love with Jesus um, and they wouldn't take his help because he didn't come from the right way. They started to realize that everywhere they had Christianized these native tribes, they had the native tribes all wearing dockers and tennis shoes and button down shirts. And, you know, these are people who've been raised in loincloths and, and, and hunting and doing their thing. And they had their own culture. But yeah. the, the idea of these missionaries from the book was to be a Christian meant to fit into the Americanized box and so much so that they just rejected this guy. And then this guy went off and, and witnessed to the tribes. And actually, I think he lived out there for three years and didn't have a single convert, not one person. Wow. Wow. Uh, but then by the time he was done, the entire tribe had gotten saved. He was out there witnessing. It wasn't about making them look like Americans. It was about Christ. That I think it summarizes so much of what we're talking about here where is your, and I, and I have to do this all the time for myself. Where is my primary identity? Is my primary identity being an American or is it being a son of God? And I do think we often confuse the two. And when you get into Jesus's I am statements, you realize that they're radical and they're disturbing. And again, you know, people have a wrong idea because when they read scripture, the Pharisees are the, the set up as the enemy. Um, And the Sadducees people kind of go beyond they don't realize that the, the, the scribes and the, the, the leaders that, that are talked about are the, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees yeah, have the power the rules of the people. The Pharisees came from, um, you know, the Maccabees. Was the Maccabees? Who was yeah, it? The Maccabee movement. The, yeah, the Maccabees. Yeah. The Pharisees were really the, pe- the, the guys of the people. So when Jesus yeah. was taken on the Pharisees, he was kind of taken on the heroes of the people. The Sadducees were the ones that ruled the temple and ruled all the right. stuff. So of the last hundred years, they were they were the revolutionists. The Pharisees were yeah. of the last hundred years. Yeah. So when he was taken on the Pharisees, he was taken on not the oppressive religious leaders as the people saw it then. He was taken on the heroes, and he was taken yeah. on the religious oppressors <laughs> in the in the form of the Sadducees, which yes. lends new understanding when you take the I am statements, which really means I'm God. Every time he says I am. He's giving God's name, which you were not allowed to say I am back in those days. <clears throat> so you, what you're talking about is radical. And whenever we get together, you're always talking about what's radical. I love that. Um, you, you're a you're revolutionary, which is exactly what Jesus meant for us to be. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, I listen. I When I look at the story of Jesus, I don't find a sanitized narrative. Even if you're looking at the synoptic gospels and you see the different accounts, like it's very clear these things were not sanitized. You're encountering something that is intentionally disruptive, intentionally disorienting. And I think that is the call to repentance. It's to acknowledge, like, hey, I don't, I don't see this world exactly as it is. 
And I need the influence of something beyond me in order to see it as it truly is. I, uh, Ken, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. That's how I had cataract surgery. No, tell you that. I see exactly uh, <laughs> <laughs> like three, four years ago. But yeah, I think it was four years ago. I had a cataract surgery. So I was actually born with a cataract. So really? I had a, yeah, I had some kind of trauma induced cataract. My, they think it might've happened in the womb. Um, but my whole life I've had a fog on my right lens. And I, when they discovered it, when I was young, like the, it's funny, the doctor like called his, all his interns. He's like, you need to come in. This is the most beautiful cataract you will ever see in your entire life. It's not Brown and crusty. It's like this beautiful gray. And anyway, but it basically covered my entire view of sight. And so I, I grew up, I grew up with a, a cataract distorted vision for people out there who don't know what a cataract is. It's a fog that develops on your lens and it um, inhibits your ability to see things clearly. And so finally, when I was in my early thirties, cause they want you to wait till you're a little older to operate on your eye. Cause your eye changes until you're in your late twenties, early thirties. Hmm. And so I went in for the operation. Um, and what they do is they cut out, they cut out the cataract. So they cut out the entire lens and they put an artificial lens in. That's the only way they can get rid of the cataract. So I get out of the surgery, Ken, I've got a brand new lens. I'm recovering. And, uh, it's a couple days later and I look in the mirror and I notice that my pupils are two totally different sizes. And I was like, wow, that's, that's weird. I don't think that's normal. So I picked up the phone. Um, I called the called the surgeon and he's like, yeah, get in here right away. So I go down there. He throws me on an operating table. His anesthesiologist had already left for the day. And he's like, Hey, I've got to stitch you up right now. So we're just, we're going to have to, we're going to have to take care of this. So I lay down on the operating table. It tells me to look at a point in the ceiling. I look at the point of the ceiling. He puts something on my eye to keep it open. He's like, do not move. He numbed up my eye and he stitched, he stitched it up because it was leaking vitreous fluid. Anyway, so wow. I ended up going through this crazy ordeal over the next few weeks. I had to go to retina specialists. I had to have three procedures because of complications. Um, all this is done four or five weeks later. I'm sitting there with a the doctor and my vision, Ken, is still the exact same. It still looks as if I'm looking through a cataract. And I just said, doc, like, what's going on? Like, I've had all these procedures. Um, I thought I was going to be able to see clearly what's going on. He said, Addison, he's like, there's nothing I can do to make your lens more clear. You have a perfectly clear lens. He said, your brain is still convinced that you're seeing through a fog and wow. is superimposing a fog on everything that you see through your right eye. And it was, it was one of those moments, Ken, for me. Well, like I had a, I had a moment with God where I was like, wow. Okay. So like, this is what Jesus was getting at. One of the things Jesus repeated more than anything else in the, in the gospels was, oh, you have eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to perceive and understand. Like this, this is what he's talking about. This is what Paul's writing about in Ephesians. I think it's 118 where he talks about having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And I was like, we have this new life. We have salvation. We, we have in a sense, we've woken up, but we're really not seeing things clearly because we're not leaning into the otherness of God. We're not leaning into the journey and the process of sanctification, which is taking what happens inside of us and allowing that through the partnership of the Holy Spirit to work its way out into every part of who we are. And I think there's a lot of sons and daughters out there, Ken, I'm talking about cross generations who are still looking at their life, still looking at themselves, still looking at this world through a fog lens. And they wonder why like, they're not seeing the things that they read about in scripture or wondering why their, their prayers aren't being answered or whatever. And so for me, like I, I do, like I, I want us to unpack this idea of I am because everything 
happens, everything begins here. I think that's why the father, when we see Jesus' moment of baptism, he comes onto the scene. He says, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. Both times the father invades our space and speaks over the son. He speaks identity over the son. I think in John 17, when Jesus is talking about the unity that he is praying for and contending for and hoping for, it's really a unity that comes through the sons and daughters realizing like that beloved identity and the fact that, hey, just because God's working and moving in a different way through that person over there and it looks different, that doesn't mean that I am less. We are not in competition. God is doing something expansive through all of our efforts. And as you shared earlier, and that's so important for us to remember, yes, we need to pass everything through the filter of scripture. Absolutely. But you and I both know that when it comes to scripture, we've had great conversations around that. There are some, there are some areas for discussion. And that is why we do unfortunately have a lot of factions and divisions within the body of Christ. But what if we allowed the tension of the otherness or the tension of our differences, our different viewpoints, what if we allow that to expand our viewpoints instead of allowing that to separate us and divide us from working together for greater kingdom mission? Um, so I think we have to be disruptive, Ken, because what we've done isn't working. You look at Jesus's work in life. It was incredibly disruptive. He made everyone uncomfortable. Everyone. He made his disciples uncomfortable. He made his mom uncomfortable. He made the Pharisees uncomfortable. He made the Sadducees uncomfortable. He made Pilate uncomfortable. I mean, he made everyone uncomfortable and he didn't make them uncomfortable just because it's fun to make people uncomfortable and it's fun to be disruptive. He made people uncomfortable because they realized that he was the incarnate expression of something that they always knew to be true, but could not put words to. He made them come to terms with parts of who they were and parts of what they knew to be true. Because it says Ecclesiastes 3.11, that eternity was written on our hearts. There are just things that we know in Jesus, he becomes that mirror. He becomes that perfect representation where it's like, oh, I don't like what this is doing inside of me and what this is causing me to confront. So I'm going to make excuses or I'm going to categorize or I'm going to dismiss. And that's just not the appropriate response to the work and person of Jesus. It's funny because he sent Paul to to give us further instruction, right? To, To hone it a little bit. And Paul had the same effect so much so that I talk about this all the time. When Paul was murdered, he was alone. You know, you think about the guy who wrote a ton of the New Testament, who all those churches were established by Paul. And when he's writing Timothy and 2 Timothy, getting ready, they're about to drag him out where they will beat him almost to the point of death for hours, breaking almost every bone in his body, but making sure they don't kill him because the only way a Roman citizen could be killed was to be beheaded. And he'd finally be dragged over and be beheaded. He knows that's about to happen. And all he can say is, I'm all alone, Timothy. And if you could come out here, I'd really appreciate it and bring me my coat because I'm cold. He's in Rome. He wrote Romans 20 years earlier, whatever that was, 15 years earlier. Yeah. yeah. And no one's coming to see him. So could anybody be closer to God than Paul? Maybe. But certainly he would be at the, the highest level way beyond me, right? I mean, he, based on Second Corinthians 12, he did... Uh, he did re- experience some things that, you know, other people don't experience. He's not even allowed to talk about them. <laughs> right. And yet, what was the effect? Was he Mr. Popular? Did they all go rushing to see him? No, his, his, the mirror that he shined into people's faces was so hard. And so I do think, you know, Jesus promises us that we're going to have a lot of enemies if we love him. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of those enemies might be some of these established Christians who are demanding that we conform to their way. Do you, um, can you give us this, the seven I am statements uh, though? Cause yeah. you've got to summarize them in your own words. 
Yeah. 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 Um, so the seven are, I am creative. I am holy. I am righteous. I'm secure. I'm confident. I am loved. And I am called. Did I say called yet? No, those are the seven. So I'll, so again, creative, holy, righteous, secure, called, confident, loved. And what we, what we do in the book and really kind of like all this began, the whole heart for sons and daughters began for us. We, we noticed, so it's my, my, my two of my brothers and my wife, we, we co-founded this and we saw that there's just a lack of transfer of faith from generation to generation. And so we started to ask ourselves, we, we had something profound happen in our life where there wasn't just a transfer of faith. We, we took what my parents gave us, but then we were also championed and encouraged to go and explore and to ask questions and to build relationship with God and figure out what that meant for our own lives. And what it did is it allowed us to stay connected with our parents. Like we're very close with our parents. And so we're like, how do we pass faith from generation to generation? Cause that's a big challenge that a lot of parents are navigating today. And so sons and daughters came out of that need. Like we got to figure out the language for the next generation, millennials and Gen Z in particular, because the language that a lot of parents are using in the construct that they're using is not working. I mean, I'm just talking data. I'm not, this isn't conjecture. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my anecdotal response. I'm talking data. It is not working. There is, there's a breakdown that's happening. And so with, with this, we're like, okay, let's go back to scripture for us organizationally, you know, scripture like that. That's what we go back to. We go back to scripture and we're like, all right, looking at scripture, how have we missed this? And how can we create a, a framework that's big enough for us to not feel confined, but also have the safety and the clarity that comes with being in tune with God's vision for human flourishing and what it means to be sons and daughters. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Struggling to balance work and time with your kids? Parenting teenagers? What about having tough conversations about tough issues? Promise Keepers is launching a 14-day fatherhood challenge just for you. It all starts with a one-hour kickoff event live on Facebook and YouTube. Then join us on the Promise Keepers app for 14 days of encouragement and practical application. Join with other like-minded brothers for sharpening conversations and discussions that will take your fatherhood to the next level. 
Don't delay. Register today at promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. That's promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. Keeping in kind of context of your book, but moving to a subject that we were talking about this morning that I told you I wanted to talk about, and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, um, well. <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think there were a couple. That well, were, I'm, I'm really going to throw well. this one on you. Um, okay. Yeah, I want to talk about de- deconstructing the faith yeah. that we talked about. So, so my generation, as you look at people who are older, who were raised, um, even, I mean, I graduated high school in 1985. Um, God was out of our schools by then, but still the, the, the basic education we got was Judeo-Christianity and everybody pretty much assumed the Bible was God's word and the truth. Like sure. even teachers who, who weren't, you know, when, when somebody came up and said they were a pastor, everybody went, well, I better watch my mouth, you know? Um, and that, that is for people who are older, um, who've raised their kids. That's kind of how we see the world, your generation. Um, and there is a distinctive split. There've always been differences in generations, but, but I was 28 years old before I ever saw email. Right. So the internet. So, so our brains don't think in terms of, <clears throat> Oh, I, I can Google. I remember driving along in the car in Lake Tahoe with my kids once. And I was like, yeah, they don't know how deep that is. You know? And then my son's like, you know, two seconds later, it's 1900 feet. Oh yeah. I forgot. We can Google stuff like that now. Like I, I was raised thinking you know how deep Lake Tahoe was. So our brains don't think that way. And uh, your generation, I mean, you're, you're not that much younger than me, but you know, you're 19 or 20 years younger than me, but you, um, you were raised with internet and email. And so your, your brains really think differently. And part of what's come from that is an exposure to other worldviews much larger than mine at a younger age. And so what we're struggling with is a younger generation doesn't see the Bible as God's word necessarily. They don't see it as the template of truth. Like even people who hate God in my generation tell, still tend to. And that's creating this dissonant uh, ability to communicate because when I communicate to a 25 year old, I'm communicating from a perspective of this is what the Bible says is truth. And the 25 year olds going, I don't care what the Bible says. So, yeah. so kind of help us because a lot of our audience is middle-aged and older understand yeah. that for the younger people, our kids that we're trying to communicate with and raise, they're seeing things from a, com- such a completely different foundation than us that we're really having a difficulty communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the challenge of the day. I think when we look at the information age, as you mentioned, Ken, I mean, it was what, 20, 25, 26 years ago, whatever it was when the internet came onto the scene. Um, now we are inundated with information. And at any point, it used to be whoever was the most confident in the argument won the argument. And when two people disagreed about something, and it was factual. It's like whoever was more confident about their answer. Now it's like, oh, I'm sorry, what'd you say? Okay, hold on. Google. No, actually, it's this, right? And so things have changed. And I, I think that's a microcosm into a, like a greater phenomenon that we're seeing where the next generation, like, oh, I'm sorry, what did you say about that? Oh, okay. Boom, boom, boom. And so what what I see a lot of young people um, resorting to is what I what I call DIY spirituality. Okay, do it yourself spirituality. It's picking and choosing based on the information that is available to them, um, based on their own experiences, based on the experiences of others. We, we are in a world today. It's, it's truly unprecedented. And I I hate using that word because it's used so often, but this is, this is a time when it actually does mean what it's supposed to mean where 
we are no longer comparing our belief system or comparing our experience to those around us, to those in our immediate world. We are forced to confront a world that is much greater than we can understand. And that creates a lot of confusion just because we don't have a point of reference. We don't have a source of truth, especially when you remove scripture from the mix. And so I think what a lot of people are doing now in the deconstruction movement is they're having a hard time reconciling their idea of the gospel and their idea of salvation, soteriology, God's plan um, for reconciliation. They're having a hard time reconciling what the church has given them. And when I say church, I'm talking about the general church. I know there's a lot of churches that are doing this extremely well, but what the church has given them with the real problems and conversations and needs that are happening in their world. And because we haven't done a good job bridging that gap, they're looking at scripture and they're saying, yeah, I don't really know if I need that because it's not really relevant to what's happening. And it's also very inconvenient um, when considering many of the conversations that they're facing. And because the way scripture has been wielded in part, and anytime a partial truth is called the whole truth, both truths are compromised, right? So that's that's something like we've got to understand and we've got to navigate with humility. Um, when we come in with bravado and with this sense of clarity, because it makes sense to us because of what we've grown up in and what we've assumed. And we try to force that on someone else who doesn't have that experience or is navigating different challenges. There is a fundamental breakdown and we're seeing that happen. And a lot of people who deconstruct the faith, the journey leads to agnosticism where essentially like, yeah, or Epicureanism, like there is a God, he doesn't really care. Or like he's just kind of left us to manage our affairs. And then scripture, the Bible becomes something that we can pick and choose and use as another source of wisdom. And that's where a lot of young people are today when it comes to scripture. So you just come at them and be like, well, the Bible says this. They'll be like, okay, like that's great. I mean, Ken, even the way we view the afterlife has changed dramatically just in the last 20 to 40 years. It's yeah, I mean, it used to be when you're talking about like a salvation call, I feel like ministers, they would get people down front by scaring them with hell. And and now because of a lot of the, the work that has gone into like, what is hell, things like that, a lot of people are like, I don't even believe in hell. Like, that's not like, that's not even a thing. Like, if, if God is good, if God is love, and blah, 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 and you, you get a lot of pluralism, you get a lot of universalism in there. And, and so like that, that message of, of, Hey, you know, one day you're going to spend eternity someplace you need to do X, Y, and Z people are like that, that doesn't resonate with me anymore. And, and so we're navigating some very unique challenges. And if we're not careful, if we're not intentional with our language and connect scripture with the very real challenges that we're navigating today and lean into the mystery of scripture and lean into the otherness of scripture and what that means for this cultural moment, more and more people represented by the next generation, they're not going to read scripture and they're certainly not going to read scripture as authoritative. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yes. I, I see people engage with scripture to a degree, but they no longer view it as authoritative. It's just another good source for them to engage with along with their favorite Eastern religion or this or that, or whatever guru that they're listening to um, through social media or whatever medium they're engaging um, with and getting their information from. So how do we, and we have like five minutes left. Uh, how do we, how do we navigate that? Yeah, well, You know, I'm just thinking about the person whose 16 year old daughter or 22 year old son 
you know, they've just been exposed to um, all this and now they're struggling and they're brainwashed and, and a person's trying to communicate with them and you've just totally frustrated them by saying that they can't really bring them back to scripture because if, um, you know, they're, they're now convinced that we're just a collection of cells that should get all we can out of life now. Um, yeah. how, how do you communicate with them? What, what, uh, how do you bring them yeah. back to truth? Yeah, I mean, I'll speak personally. I have multiple friends who I've navigated this journey with. Um, and I think the most undervalued attribute of love is patience. I really do. And I, I think there's no accident that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he cites patience first in the list. And then he closes out the list by essentially saying, bears all things, endures all things, which is steadfastness, which is patience twin sister. And so when we're talking so what you're about saying this, is you don't need to win the argument. That's Ken. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. You being willing to sit in that room and engage a conversation and, and know what you truly know and be confident in what you believe. It keeps you from having a head to head argument and allows you to engage heart to heart. When you engage heart to heart, you see a real person and you receive from a real person. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe that if we give God space and we honor the questions, okay, hear what I'm saying. There are a lot of valid questions that are leading to deconstruction. We need to be asking those questions in a safe place without immediately engaging in hostility, right? Which is what most people do. When they engage in a difficult question, they they side up and they go after each other, guns blazing. And so what I would encourage parents, what I would encourage friends to do is create a space of patience. I mean, what does it say in Second Peter 3 about God's patient response to the human struggle? He doesn't want anyone to perish. Like his patience, his forbearance, like that's who God is. You see his steadfast love celebrated all throughout the Psalms. Like there's, there's something so powerful that happens when we remember that we are not God. Yes, yes, God gave you your sons and daughters and gave you a voice in their life for a reason. But there comes a point in our lives, and can you know this, raising kids, where you have got to turn your kids over to God. Like your job is to teach them how to go from dependent to independent to interdependent, right? Like to flourish in relationships where they're choosing to be connected to other people or they're choosing to engage in meaningful relationships. And so for me, I would say, be patient, create space for these conversations. And my passion, my heart is this, Ken, I want to help people deconstruct to take them back to scripture so they can reconstruct. The people who are standing on the sidelines, and if, if you're one of those people, I just I want to share this with you right now. Standing on the sidelines, throwing stones, you're missing, you're missing the point. You're missing the appropriate response. Prophetic disruption always comes from within. If you study church history, it always comes from within. What it is, it's a return to God's original heart, to the original design. It's a reminder like, hey, this is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be. Let's go back to that. That is what prophetic unction. That is what the prophetic work is supposed to do in the church. It's not like some weird flashy, this or that it's supposed to bring us back to the heart of God and bring clarity to the body of Christ that only comes from within. And that is why we, as the people of God in this moment, we have to realize, look, we need to keep our heads about us. We can't just toss this thing out. We can't side up and polarize. We need to come together, work in the tension and collectively, we're going to figure out the best way forward. I believe that is how the spirit of God worked through the, the church and the book of Acts. I mean, just go back and read their struggle, read the struggle as Paul describes it in his letters to these early churches. 
this has always been, I hate the term, this has always been the formula, if you will. This is how we're supposed to engage as the people of God, as we feel the pressure coming on us from the fronts of religiosity, from culture, from politics, whatever it may be. Like This is how we're supposed to engage as a community. And it's only through this process that we find um, a greater answer, a transcendent truth that can lead us forward. That's good stuff. Now, I found... Um because I've had to lead a lot of companies, a lot of secular organizations, which is really hard when you really love Jesus. You, you see so much brokenness, so much just people just screwed up. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, and you can't really engage with them in scripture in a clear way like you'd like to. So I've had to learn to teach people, um, that have a massively different worldview than me, but we're on the same team, you know, for, for the company. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it helped me with my kids too. And, and my daughter is a very much an intellectual. She's a 25 year old. She's an English teacher and at a, at a good school. And what I, what I've learned, she keeps me sharp too. And what I've learned is one of the best ways to engage in somebody like that is to ask questions, not to make statements. Well, you know, why, why did you come to that opinion? Well, how does that opinion affect your life? Well, I'm, I'm reading here in, in first Corinthians seven, and, and it says this, how does that compare to what you believe? And what does that make you think yeah. about? And, yeah. and when you do that, when you frame things in a non-judgmental question, it forces people to then engage you because you're not condemning them. You're saying, help me understand. And, and God forbid, we might learn something too along the way. But I find that so many Christians were programmed into winning arguments. And you, know, you and I, we get together, we have the greatest conversations. We, we love to hang out together and just sharpen each other. But theologically, if we were to sit down and write out doctrinally, where do we, what box do we fit in? We would be in vastly different boxes. Mm-hmm. And yet we love to get together because, because I'm not trying to win an argument with you and you're not trying to win an argument with me. I'm constantly wanting to know, Addison, why do you, why do you believe what you believe? And, and, and I truly listen to you and I, and I take that and I go, well, here's how I believe, you know, and it's been a phenomenal relationship of helping each other grow, never yes. looking down on you because you're younger, never looking down on you because you're wrong. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you have a different opinion, but truly getting yeah. together to sharpen each other by learning. Yeah. And, um, it's been a, it's been a phenomenal, um, conversation and, um, this was a good conversation. I hope it was really helpful for everybody who's watching. I, I always want to think that anybody who wants to give half an hour, an hour to, to listen to us uh, talk on the podcast that, that we have, you know, that they're truly seeing value. I want to get right into the meat of things, not waste people's time. But as in, um, show us that book one more time. And yeah. uh, I want, I want you to show me the book you're going to send over with a cup of coffee from your office down there. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Yeah. It's already on the bed. It came out five days ago. It's already on several bestseller lists. This thing is really rocking. And I think uh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, I'll probably devour it tonight. Um, while I have a chance since there's no football on tonight. <laughs> Would you well, uh, thanks, Ken. pray for everybody who's watching right yeah. now? Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin, before, before I pray too, I want to thank you uh, a bit of context for the people listening. I actually reached out to you after we met last June. So it was June, 2020, it was either June or May, 2020. We met and I so admired your conviction. And I knew that you and I were coming from different places as far as our approach to truth. And I valued that. And I actually reached out to you and I asked you like, Hey, would you mentor me? Could we, could we start getting together regularly? And I know you've got so much going on in your world and it's meant a ton. The fact that you poured into my life, 
And I just want you to know how grateful I am for you and your conviction and your presence and um, what you're doing in this moment. So thank you. I've learned as much from you as you've learned from me. That's for sure. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. Hey, the only thing in scripture, I think it's in Romans 12 where it tells us to compete is outdoing each other in honor. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But Hey, father, we thank you so much. Um, first of all, for who you are, we thank you for your faithfulness as father. I thank you for the sons. I thank you for the daughters who are tuning in, who are listening um, to this conversation. Father, I pray that we would pause and we would, truly recognize what it means to be sons and daughters. God, I, I think it's amazing. You could have called us anything, but you chose to call us sons and daughters. You chose to give us a seat at the table. You chose to give us a mission, a part of the family business that you've invited us into. And God, I pray um, that we would have wisdom for what we should do in this moment. God, I pray that we would not rely on our own wisdom, that we wouldn't rely on our own strength, but we would lean into your grace, the grace that only comes as we humble ourselves and acknowledge that we do not see things as they truly are, but by your spirit, we can do exactly what you are inviting us and calling us to do in this moment. Father, I pray that you would bless everyone listening to this right now. I pray that you would bless them with a greater measure of your presence in their life. Father, there's, there's nothing greater. Moses said, Hey, I don't want the promised land without you. I don't want the promised land without the promiser. And so father, I ask, that in this season of confusion, in this season of disorientation, that we would have the clarity, that we would have the ability to see, the ability to know, that we would have the joy, that we would have the fortitude, the strength that only comes from being in tune with your presence and in tune with your word. Father, I pray that you would open the scriptures to us. I pray that you would give us the answers that we need for this moment. And I pray that we would be people of faith, be people of hope, and be people of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to On The Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting and I wanna tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.